I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Raptors Over Everything podcast. My name is Emmett Mann. Rate, review, and subscribe on your podcast platforms and on YouTube. Like and subscribe there as well, especially for this chat right here that I'm very excited about. Joining me today, Chris Oliver of the the Basketball Podcast and Basketball Immersion YouTube channel. I'm sure a lot of you have seen his work, and we're going to talk about the Raptors offense and just Darko Ryukovic. But first off, thank you so much for joining me. I understand that you are in Saskatchewan right now. Wow. Well, wonderful to be here. And I haven't been back in Canada in over a year. So not only am I back in Canada, finally, but uh, I am talking about my favorite team, the Toronto Raptors, and uh, just so fun to be able to talk. And, uh, you know, I've read your work. I've listen to your work it's just great stuff it's awesome to have so much great coverage of the raptors i appreciate it what are you doing in saskatchewan right now so um i am running a basketball camp for a basketball immersion member who uh brought me in to be able to run a camp with his program here in swift current and uh, it's just been wonderful to be able to be a part of it and uh i came from gainesville florida where i was at the florida clinic which is kind of like a a private clinic of college coaches and NBA coaches there. And mm-hmm. then I'm off to the university of Missouri to do some consulting there. And uh, just a lot of fun to be able to be involved in basketball at so many different levels. Yeah. And your, your podcast, it helps people learn so much about the game and also the game within the game as a coach. And, and you're trying to understand your players. Um, how do you win every single possession, every single second of a shot clock? Um, it's so informative and the, the unique perspectives you get is such a range of people and everyone has so thoughtful with their answers. Like uh, if anyone, if you're looking to learn more about basketball, like it's a great uh, podcast to listen to. And also everything you do on YouTube too is, uh, is terrific. Well, thank Thank you. I mean, my intent was originally just to share the game and as, as authentically as possible and to be able to have real coaching conversations with coaches as well. And I think that's really the big, the part that's been the best is that so many coaches that have come on the podcast have just been so intent on sharing authentically what they do and uh, just a real, real, real fun experience to be able to be involved at that level. Sure. And segue alert, one of the coaches you did talk to a few years ago in 2020, I believe, was Darko Ryukovic. And uh, we were joking before we started recording that um, when he was hired, people knew very little about him. And I had done my own little research, but then people stumbled upon the podcast that you did with him. And it was very detailed. And we learned a lot about him. And since that, we haven't learned too much about Darko and his system. He's being very secretive understandably right um this is a big moment for him but i'm curious on what your takeaways were from that discussion you had with him well first off i met darko when uh you know he was at oklahoma city and uh you know many mutual kind of acquaintances and friends and just different people and we've had a chance to connect a few times in person but uh certainly as i talk about this most of my references back are the same as yours which is back to that (laughs) podcast and uh you know since then certainly we've kept in touch but uh, i have no real necessarily insight specifically in terms of what he's going to do but i think the you know the philosophy that he shared there was authentic and uh, it's pretty much I think what he's going to try and do because everything he read too in terms of his hiring was related to him just creating a better culture a better environment for players especially around player development and uh, empowering players maybe a little bit more to be able to play with more freedom as well and uh, those things really stood out in the podcast I think the one thing that really stood out was this concept of psychological safety which Hmm. is the undertone, I think, of the whole podcast for him. And I believe it's the undertone of what he's going to try and bring to the Raptors. And this is, it's just this feeling for players that they are safe and they belong and that they can ask questions, they can speak up, they can take risks without being punished and in fact, be encouraged to do that. And I believe that that's the part ultimately that people don't connect enough to player development. Yeah, Yeah, there's doing the repetitions, but the main thing is, do they have the safety from the coach, from their organization to be able to not only even try those things, but also apply those things in game situations. And, uh, you know, everything that he talked about on that podcast was really in support of that, that uh, he was okay Mm -hmm. with them making mistakes and he wanted them to be vulnerable because he wanted to be vulnerable himself and make it more of a shared experience. Sure. 
And from what we have gathered um, over the past little while, and what we've seen too, is that um, I enjoy seeing assistant coaches join fellow assistant coaches when they become, they make that jump. And so Monty Williams case, uh, they're both coaching together and then Monty gets head coaching job. He's like, I want Darko to come with me. And then uh, Taylor Jenkins has said nothing but good things about Darko and all these success stories of players he has worked with within Memphis, within Phoenix. Um, it seems like he really cares about people. And that is like a genuine part of who he is, his character. And from there, once you have that foundation, um, there's the willingness to be vulnerable, you know, myself and yourself. And then we just keep on growing possession by possession, as I mentioned earlier, and day by day. And now I, I do wonder what that looks like with the Toronto Raptors this upcoming season, because, you know, Nick Nurse, um, probably to a fault to a degree, is that he was all about winning. He wanted to win. And unless you you were able to, be into that top eight where he felt like you were going to be contributing. Um, probably you didn't play that much. And that's why you saw a lot of starters. They were in the 38, 39, 42 minutes. Pascal Siakam is still probably tired from the season that he just had. Um, but this upcoming season, I don't think that's going to be the, the case with, with Darko. And um, I'm, I'm curious to see what it looks like, especially with some players who they could probably use a, just a, a change of scenery or a change of atmosphere. And I think the Raptors sense that through uh, the decision that they made to bring on Darko from your podcast that you did with them. Let's go through some of like the point form notes that you feel like the Raptors are going to be showing and displaying with their half court offense and offensive philosophy this upcoming year. Well, just in support of what you're saying first is, uh, you know, the type of person he is. I believe yep. that's authentic. Like, like mm -hmm. the, from what you've heard, from what you saw, press conferences, et cetera, like he is genuinely that type of person. He's very humble and he comes from a place of humility because of his upbringing as well. And, uh, you know, quite the journey to be able to get where he is. And I know he's, he's humbled by that. And I think that's really the approach that you want. And when I speak and when you speak, I mean, it's not meant to be like, we're not putting Darko up to put anyone else down. Cause as you just referred to with, with coach nurse and coaching in general, just from a coach's perspective, I'll just say, man, there's no coach that's trying to do bad things. Like, Absolutely not. Yep. Yep. <laughs> they're trying to do their best. And as you know, sometimes things don't work out. And uh, and then that comes back to what you just asked. And I think no matter what Darko does, the number one thing for success in the NBA for any coach is buy-in. Hmm. Just buy-in. So he first has to connect with players at a relationship level to be able to get them to be able to buy in. And not just buy in in terms of executing, but buy in in terms of listening, in terms of you know, the different roles, the different things that he's going to ask him to do yeah. and development can't happen without buy-in. So I think that's a big thing that Sean threw and then getting specifically into some of the tactical stuff. I mean, I think we all read it and we all know like 0.5 is the buzzword in basketball, but uh, maybe a lot of people don't understand why 0.5 seconds is so important on offense where the ball doesn't stick. And I think we mm -hmm. saw that last year with the Raptors offense, a lot of isolation, a lot of yeah. stick of the ball, and they're going to try and get into ball movement and uh, making quick decisions and what that means is essentially that most coaches talk about defensively a defender trying to control the first second. So a defender can control, control the first second of a catch, then they can control the offensive player. Yeah. So the offense is trying to counter that by trying to make their decision. And it, and it goes like this. I mm -hmm. perceive, I decide, and then I execute. So my perception and decision part is trying to happen in that point five so that I can execute the skill immediately. Because yes. as we know, you're the most open you're going to get when you first catch it. So that 0.5 concept is the concept of the ball movement, the player movement, all those different things that I think Raptor fans, you and me, and everyone that's been around that organization, that's what they want to see. So that comes from kind of that philosophy as an undertone. And then how do you actually do that? Well, you do that by supporting your principles of play and your principles of play around specifically his conceptual type of offense, which is what he talked about a lot in the podcast, is this concept of not having necessarily specific set plays all the time. Certainly you have set plays, you have special situations, you have plays for specific players where mm -hmm. they must do this. But generally he's going to create an environment of possibilities rather than musts, meaning yeah. when Pascal Siakam catches the ball, here's some possibilities in this situation instead of you must do this and only this. And that's very limiting for a player. So he's going to try and give them some permission and freedom to be able to explore their possibilities within each situation. And that's really what we mean by conceptual offense and then connecting that 0.5 seconds. 
Sure. And just some numbers going into this upcoming season. Last year, uh, the Raptors were 22nd in off-ball screening frequency. They were 10th in isolation frequency, although they were also 25th in points per possession in those sets. 6th in cut frequency, good. 25th again in points per possession in those situations. And once again, 7th in post-up frequency. And once again, 25th funny enough, uh, in points per possession in those situations. So that kind of is the Raptors offense in a nutshell. There were cutting, um, there was isolation, there were post-ups, but was it the right kind of cutting and the off-ball movement, um, the stagnant nature of the offense? And I mentioned earlier, and I echo your point that this isn't necessarily about, you know, bashing on Nick Nurse for how things went. I think there was a reason why he coached the way he did and why he had the philosophy that that he did. it just didn't work out the way that we wanted to. And also injuries were a problem. Um, and the lack of three-point shooting on the roster from top to bottom is a problem for not just the Raptors, for any franchise. And uh, some guys, as we mentioned, you know, they had off years and you're hoping that they do rebound um, this upcoming season. So then I was just watching the Canada and France game, uh, the FIBA game, which was awesome and uh, awesome a great thing to see, like, geez, Canada won their first uh, FIBA World Cup game in however long. Um, but the buy-in that I saw from the whole the whole team was what really stood out. And I think that this is a team, talking about Team Canada, uh, the roles are very simple to to define because of the personnel that they have. Shea Gildas-Alexander is going to be your number one option. RJ Barrett is a great number two. Brooks, Lou Dort, Kelly Olenek is just made for FIBA. And so everything kind of fits with that. But with the Raptors... That's not necessarily the case. And that could be harder to get players into roles. And the buy-in, as you mentioned a moment ago, is going to be so pivotal to the Raptors' success this season offensively. And I wonder what you think. How do you do that? How do you get players to buy into a role? And now Dark is going to have his own vision. But generally speaking, there has to be a give and take between a player and a coach. So that way they're buying into the role. And also they're getting a little bit for themselves too. Well, a lot of mini conversations. A lot of mini conversations. And I think sometimes we portray coaching as a big conversation, a big speech to the team, but it's just constant. And that's the hard part about coaching, to be honest, is that there's not just like, not just pre-practice, not just in practice, there's Mm. post-practice and especially aftercare. This concept of being able to constantly communicate with your players. And I think that's where a lot of breakdown probably happens you know, in a, in a coach nurse type of system possibly is that it's just much harder to do that with that type of team that he had this year versus if we look back and reflect on that championship team, I think Nick nurse's brilliance as a coach is his adaptability yeah. and his ability to be able to adapt on the fly. And I think it's well-documented. I mean, he's one of the best ever. And uh, you know, it's easier to do that with a Kawhi Leonard, a Paul Gasol, a Kyle Lowry, like, uh, you know, all these different guys that he had yeah. on that team. Uh, Marcus Hall, I said, Paul, but uh, you get that is that he tried to do some of that stuff, I think, especially defensively this year. And it's just much harder with this roster because it's not as an experienced roster, which connects back to your point and what you kind of asked. And that's this concept of how do you get buy in? Well, I think it's easier to get buy in because like Team Canada, Team Canada doesn't have the best 10 basketball players in Canada. They have a great blend of the best players in the world and some players that probably aren't the best players in the world, but are great in their role. And I think that's really going to be easier, I believe, on this Raptor roster, because I think it's a little bit more defined in that way. Um, The the challenge that I throw out to you and to everyone else is to really you throw out those numbers, which are awesome. Who's going to run pick and roll? I mean, (laughs) you know, no matter what, I think it's 80 possessions on average in offense. And like, you know, generally teams are averaging 60, 70 possessions of pick and roll. So yeah. it's like, who's running pick and roll? And if they're not running pick and roll, what are they doing to be able to create space and advantage? And I think that's going to be a curiosity for all of us to be able to see. Yeah, it was roughly 1,500 possessions that Fred Van Vliet ran uh, this past season. And who is it? I mean, it could be a lot of different players. And um, it's funny that, you know, I was going to go through the strengths and weaknesses of, of the roster. And one of the weaknesses I was going to say is they lack three-level scorers. They have guys who can do it at two levels, one level, uh, 1.5, two and a half, but no one necessarily that can do it at three levels. But the people that you think could are probably most adept to do that would be an OG Ananobi who isn't that experienced um, working in those situations. His ball handling is a little bit up and down. And Gary Trent Jr., who doesn't necessarily have the downhill threat, but clearly he's got a pull-up shooting threat. And uh, Dennis Schroeder, who they brought in, 
you know, you, you, you want to believe that any good pick and roll is probably going to force a team to go over on some screens. And I don't think the Raptors have anyone necessarily that's going to make a team do that. However, Dennis, I mean, this is a great opportunity for him. He's got a prior relationship with Darko uh, from OKC. And uh, I'm curious what you think. How could that work with a Dennis Schroeder and a Yocker Pirtle in a pick and roll situation? Dennis, he's got a floater. He can get downhill um, on the podcast with Darko. He had mentioned high high ball screens. That is advantageous for a Dennis Schroeder who's, you know, got such a lightning fast speed going downhill. But again, he is lacking the the three-point shot. And perhaps something changes upcoming season. You know, a new role, a new team does do a lot for one player. But for a Dennis Schroeder and a Yaka Pirtle, what are the the advantages of a pick and roll combo like that? And also some of the weaknesses. Well, the weaknesses you said already, which is like yeah. How are they going to get covered? Like, there's going to be a, potentially a lot of drop coverage, a lot of uh, players going under potentially on the pick and roll as well. And I think that applies for the whole Raptor team. I mean, we I think we know who the shooters are, and we know who potentially are not the shooters. Yeah. So you know that comes back to a little bit of uh, game planning as well in terms of the offensive scheme. Is like, how are we going to get players into space? And pick and roll is certainly one of those ways because you can draw two to the ball. And mm-hmm. the problem is obviously if you can't shoot behind the pick and roll or you can't create big advantages at the rim then it's a question of you're not drawing any type of help off the ball and you're not drawing two players. So I think the Raptors have possibilities to be able to do that in different ways. Um, They can do some different things to be able to try and create space, especially at a five out and some different types of across actions or Mm -hmm. cutting actions that cut across the face of the ball. So go screening it or brush screening it instead of actually setting the screen to be able to create space for players to be able to get more downhill. And you look at that roster and you go, okay, well, there's certain guys that would be better getting into space rather than actually drawing two. And uh, they might do something like that to be able to create those advantages. But, you know, we think about Fred and how tremendous he was and obviously an NBA champion and all those different things, and he's going to be missed. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't an idea. He wasn't the perfect point guard either because he didn't consistently put pressure on the rim either. And that's I think that was the big thing that was lacking with this whole roster is that, you know, if you're not going to shoot a ton of threes, you got to put pressure on the rim. And you can do that, as you alluded to, from cutting, you can do that from driving, um, and you can do that from different types of situations where advantages off the ball are created from, say, get a situation. Instead of running the pick and roll, you run a yeah. pass and cut action. So to me, I look at this roster and I go, they're probably more set up to be able to run a lot more gets and a lot of more creativity off of zooms and different types of handoffs Mm -hmm. than off of pure pick and rolls. And I'll be curious to see what their pick and roll numbers are early in the year, because that's (laughs) going to really reflect kind of their style of play Um, because they definitely have, they don't have a true kind of, you know, pick and roll ball handler, even though Pirtle's really Mm -hmm. good, I think off the roll, Um, how are they going to get him some short roll catches where I think he's pretty good as well. And that's another way to be able to obviously create space and draw two is to be able to pass to those short roll situations. Sure. And Jakob Pertl, he is a great player, but also, um, you know, scoring from 15 feet, 20 feet isn't necessarily his strength, which is another way in which you're able to spread out a defense. You know, we remember the Kyle Lowry, Serge Ibaka pick and roll, how potent it was because Serge could roll into a three point shot. He could roll into a mid range jumper and they just had a chemistry that was a beautiful thing that I miss dearly Um, going into some of the other weeks. Well, as much as you say versatile. No, as much as you said versatile, like we think they're versatile on defense. And I think Darko referred to that in a press conference, even where he talked about their versatility. They they can play different lineups. They can play small. They can play big. They're very Mm -hmm. versatile in principle, but they're not necessarily very versatile on offense is what you're basically saying. And Mm -hmm. I agree with you that, you know, you said three way scorers, but it's like really for an isolation team, they don't have a ton of guys that are great shot creation guys either. So it really does come back to the team ethos where Darko's really going to create try and create opportunities off this ball movement, this 0.5 concept, and certainly at a transition as much as possible to be able to play with that fast pace. And then we'll see, you know, the different guys that we expect to be able to shoot the ball, certainly Craig Dick, we're all excited by him. Um, You know, just giving him permission and freedom early on to be able to shoot the ball through any type of situation. And uh, if we provide that opportunity to him, Gary Trent, different players like that, then I believe some of those three-point shooting numbers will come out come up just because players would be more relaxed because they understand that they have permission and freedom. We were all excited. And Bobby Webster mentioned it after they drafted Grady Dick that they feel like he could be an instant impact player. And uh, after summer league, he had his moments um, up and down as well, but you could also argue that he's going to be more effective playing alongside NBA players. However, defensively, 
just as a rookie rookie, how much do you think he plays in the NBA next season versus the G League? And I guess how impactful can he be right off the bat? Well, I, I've got to think, and I don't know, but I've got to think the mandate is to play him a lot and, yeah. to, and to let him struggle because you, you, you ultimately learn through struggle. So mm-hmm. I think they see him as a long-term player. And I don't think anything from Summer League, from what I heard, changes anyone's perspective on that. It, it's not about making or missing shots. You alluded to defense. You alluded to understanding off the ball. And everyone says that he has a superior understanding off the ball of understanding space and advantage. And to me, that's a that's a skill immediately that translates. So to be able to evaluate a lot of these players, if we're talking about player development, especially early in the year, then I would encourage people to think about evaluating things independent of outcome. I understand it's a make or miss league, but you know we know he can shoot. You yep. know how comfortable is he going to get to be able to shoot early? That's a question. Now, okay, th- that's a little bit of on him, but it's also a lot on the system, and then. What type of nurturing are we doing behind the scenes to support him? And then what kind of support is he getting from other players? To me, that's ultimately it. I mean, Darko certainly is the leader because he's the coach, but I, I think the internal leadership is going to be also a huge question with this, in this roster is, okay, guys, in theory, you got what you want. You're free of Nick Nurse. Now let's take the responsibility of this roster and let's support each other and really, really prove that we can be something better than what we were. And I think that responsibility falls back to a lot of those veteran players to be able to not just support Grady, but everyone as well. So I think sure. that's got to be a big part of this. What are their strengths offensively? Because it can't be all bad. <laughs> what do you think? Well, it, it's it's definitely not all bad. I mean, I, I think about different players. Like, I mean, Siakam, obviously, NBA all-star whether he was or not I mean he's certainly mm-hmm. at that level and in that conversation um I think that the the challenge for him is obviously can he get consistent doing some other things as his career advances and especially the three-point shot is he ever going to develop yeah. that type of consistent versatility um but the beautiful thing is he is able to find solutions off the dribble that other people aren't able to find and I think that's what we're looking for from players like him and Scotty Barnes. And, you know, can OG develop a little bit more of that attack to close out mentality to be able to attack in space? I mean, he's the one guy that in theory, again, the three and D type of mentality, does he get closed out a little bit harder? Grady Dick, does he get closed out a little bit harder? Other players mm-hmm. get closed out short on because they don't shoot the ball as well, but those guys get closed out a little bit harder. Can they develop that versatility to be able to attack down speed? you know, in terms of that off the ball attack to close out and be able to create advantages that way. Some guys are straight line guys. Sometimes are some guys are obviously a little bit more, you know, attack and counter guys. And I think we got to see that mentality of these players early on. If they get space, then what are they going to do in that space? Attack direct, try and put pressure on the rim, draw mm-hmm. two, pass, don't draw two, score. So I think the roster has a lot of potential to be able to do those things. And I do think they have a lot of versatility in terms of that. And as I said, a little bit, playing a little bit more of inverted matchups as well. Like when you talk about small ball, you talk about different things like that, but I, I think they have the potential to lot, run a lot of like inverted pick and roll might be more, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a guard, maybe Grady Dick setting the pick and roll for Pascal Siakam. And now you're changing the whole perspective. Now you're not switching. Probably you got to make sure you connect to uh, Grady Dick after he sets it. Cause he obviously a pick and pop guy and yeah. you look for different things like that, where they can manipulate the game a little bit by playing a little mm. bit different or a little bit inverted. And I think they have some versatility to be able to do that. And then the third thing I think right away is they can be elite defensively. I really think this roster can be elite defensively. And, and as you know, and everyone knows, I mean, if you defend, then you've got a chance. And the question is, you know, I know Nick Nurse was a big emphasis on, you know, creating havoc a little bit, creating some steals, creating some disruption. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if Darko's going to do that or not, if they're going to be positional or they're going to emphasize. But they have some elite guys that be able to create advantages off the defense in terms of creating steals. And uh, if that continues, then obviously that can heighten their offense as well. I want to get to a few more things that you you said there. But focusing on OG, I know before a second, um, Darko has talked about and also Desmond Bain has talked about you know the work that they did together and you know Darko his vision for Desmond was like he wanted to make him a true uh, all kind of threat player you know work in the pick and roll uh, be able to score from three levels um, be able to pass the ball recognize the second level of defense and finish around it and he's slowly but surely gotten there and you could say that OG Anobi his his style might be a little bit awkward sometimes but the numbers when he's been given the opportunity to be more of a number one option they don't lie Right. It's 47 percent shooting. Talking about the two cases where Pascal Siakam was out of the lineup. One was uh, two cases over the past two seasons where that happened. And the numbers didn't really change. 
Do you see more upside with his scoring in terms of isolation, in terms of three-level scoring? He has his pet moves, but do you see something with him that would make him more of a potent ball handler in a pick-and-roll situation, or just overall a more cerebral offensive threat? I agree with everything you're saying there. I I do think he's got another level. And I think the level is not kind of that pure, like give him the ball and clear out type isolation. It's more Mm -hmm. off of ball movement and player movements. As we talked about already, this 0.5 concept helps him. It helps him shoot it when he's open and it helps him attack closeouts when he's not. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, like the problem in isolation is basically if you don't, don't have shooters, then you're not creating gravity, meaning players off the ball in help are not, Boxing uh, others. Co- yeah, they're not covering yeah. their yeah. jack. They're covering yeah. the help. And they're loaded to be able to stop the ball. And I think the Raptors faced a lot of that last year. So another way to counter that beyond just having shooters is ball movement and player movement. So the ball movement is not just about ball movement. It also moves the defense. Moving the defense creates advantages. It doesn't allow players to just sit in help positions. So I think that's the biggest thing for OG is that can he take advantage of those advantages and leverages those of those advantages off the ball when the ball finally does come to him? It's like coming to him with an opportunity to be able to attack with space for speed. And yeah. that's a big difference, right? Than just catching it and trying to create, you know, I don't know. There aren't a lot of elite players at that in the whole league, let alone, mm-hmm. you know, on the Raptors. So fortunately they have one in Siakam, but I think these other players like OG, I think he has a chance to have a great year because the ball movement only supports his skill set even more. Sure. I agree with you that this is probably going to be more of a dribble handoff kind of offense. Um, Something that you could look at the Golden State Warriors, right? They have a lot of different actions that they use, but using that spread pick and roll with Steph Curry, like they were very resistant. They only did it when they had to do it um, towards the, in the playoffs against the Clippers or against the Lakers and the Kings, um, because that's not the vision of their offense, but obviously different situation. You have Clay Thompson and you have a Draymond Green, who I think, Scotty Barnes could learn a little bit from, from him, um, some similar similarities there, but uh, besides the point, but you know, your pistol actions, your delays, your, your scissors um, using Scotty Barnes and Yaka Pertle as, as playmakers in those situations, I'm sure is going to be up the alley for Darko and the Raptors offense. But when it comes to cutting and moving with purpose and knowing where to be and not clogging the lane and clearing out properly and timing your cuts extremely well, that is, I think where, the Raptors are going to be, it's going to be the foundation of their offense and how successful they are on offense is going to depend on that. It's a loaded question, but let's just start with the cutting. How do you teach players to be great cutters? Is it in practices? Of course it is, but is it two on two? Is it three on three? Is it film? How do you do it? I'm sure it's a meticulous process. It's a meticulous process. So a little bit of it is a template of a structure. So it's like, okay, in these situations, we prefer the 45 to cut. In these situations, we prefer the corner to cut. Uh, These type of cut philosophies are dictated certainly by the coach. So Darko will have a certain philosophy that he wants to emphasize certain cuts from different spots and different locations and different timing. So there's certainly that template that comes to it. Most of it comes back to a player and their decision. And I mean, all of basketball ultimately comes back to the decision. So Mm -hmm. what's that decision based on? That decision is based on Obviously, not just reading your check, but reading the help as well and reading relative to the ball, where's my space? And if we talk about an offensive principle, it starts with space. So cutting is the same as, you know, we uh, you hear spacing all the time, spacing, spacing, spacing. That doesn't yeah. mean just go stand in a spot in your space. It means you also seek and find space. And I mm-hmm. want to say the other part that I want people to watch when they watch the Raptors is, and I believe this is something that can really help them, is are they going to be elite, not just at cutting but at re-spacing after the cut because a lot of opportunities especially in the nba they don't come off that initial cut that initial cut is another way to be able to draw two defenders to be able to draw help it's Mm -hmm. what happens after that cut and to be able to get into space and then get out to space is something that can be elite for this team because they certainly have some versatility in terms of positions and spots so that's going to be a big part of it And then you reference the dribble handoff part. And I think people can understand that like the difference, there are a lot of variable ways to be able to change angles on ball screens, to be able to create an advantage. And I think when you refer to Golden State and Draymond, I mean, that's the amazing thing about what he does. He's able to be able to create some ridiculous angles for players. So if you're setting a, uh, you know, dribble handoff for Steph Curry or Clay, obviously you're trying to get them a little bit behind the screen to be able to shoot it. And if you're setting some dribble handoffs for other guys, you're trying to get them at a little bit more angle to be able to go downhill. So those type of variations 
and be able to change angles on ball screens and, and uh, dribble handoffs mm-hmm. is another thing to be able to watch for. And I'm sure it's something that they're working on all the time. And I know, I do know for a fact, the coaching staff is spending a lot of time with the players this summer um, mm-hmm. to be able to spend some time on different things. And I'm sure those things are there. And then you said, how do you develop this? Well, yeah, film is a big part of it, sending clips and being able to see possibilities, but almost all of it has to come off a of game-based play. And that's a big thing for me. If people follow, me they understand like playing basketball helps you get better at basketball so whether it's Mm -hmm. small-sided games a two-on-two three-on-three as you refer to or it's a little bit more type of disadvantage games maybe it's five on four five on three there's different types of advantages it's being able to seek and find those advantages and then leverage them and that's such a big part of this and uh, i imagine they're doing a lot of that they're just not doing one-on-oh workouts where people are dribbling in spots and shooting in spots they're doing a lot of stuff that's working on these connecting these principles of plays to their player development yeah I'm not sure if it was on your podcast or not, but I think um, there was a, a case where Darko mentioned that he wants to get players to talk to each other. He doesn't want to be the voice in the room. He wants them to talk to each other. And he referenced a chat he had with uh, Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton. And um, slowly but surely, like, you know, chat by chat, eventually it was those two handling the conversation. And I could see that being very much the case with players who have the roles of, I mean, everyone has the role to be cutters, but there are certain players that are going to be you know, they had their three pillars of what they offer to the Toronto Raptors and the cutting aspect. And it was a, the podcast he did with Mike Prada where um, he referenced Sam Van Gutty said the lost art of cutting. It's so true. Um, Chris Boucher might be the best cutter on the Toronto Raptors um, heading into next season. And there's, there's so much to it yet. I don't think players and even us as fans, we appreciate how much goes into knowing where to go, when to go and how to go at any given moment. And, uh, for players like the like OG Ananobi, Gary Trent Jr. even, how can they utilize their current skill set to be the best version of themselves in terms of cutting, in terms of being an off-ball mover? Like Gary Trent Jr., um, he can get his pull-up jump shot off at any given point, right? How do you parlay that with a Scotty Barnes, with a Yaka Portal? And we saw glimpses of it with Scotty at points, but then OG Ananobi, he is a ridiculous downhill threat. How do you get him the ball going downhill as opposed to, you know, being at, you know, the high post and now he's working one-on-one. That's not where he is yet, um, but he is a bulldozer and he knows how to, you know, move his body downhill and he can move people with his body. So how do you do that with two players that are exceptionally talented, but could probably use a hand? (laughs) Well, I mean, the conceptual offense is something Darko's talked about quite a bit. And uh, that was the YouTube edit that he shared with us a little bit was their transition conceptual offense with the Phoenix Suns. And just so people understand, this is supporting what you're saying is that basically a conceptual offense is composed of principles, you know, and we already referred to as a spacing template. Where does he want players to be in spaces? You know, does he want them to be in the dunker spot or does he want them to be at the high post or the corners? Obviously, we know the corners because that's the foundation of everything. But those Mm -hmm. spacing spots are a big part of a conceptual offense. And then there's certain triggers. A conceptual offense also has these concept of a trigger. That means, okay, listen, if we have an advantage, that means some type of shoulder to chest advantage, then obviously we're attacking the basket. But if we're neutral, meaning chest to chest with someone, uh, then what are we doing to try and create an advantage? A ball screen would be an example of a trigger. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Dribble handoffs an example of a trigger. So these mm-hmm. different types of triggers, maybe a flash to the pinch post or the high post is a trigger that would work for this team as well. So, uh, but those things all sound great. But what it comes back to is what you just said. They ultimately, no matter what trigger they run and what spacing template they run, they have to have coverage solutions. So they have to have a solution 
to how they're being covered. So ultimately, that's very individual, right? The way OG is going to get covered versus the way Grady Dick's going to get covered versus the way Siakam's or Pirtle's going to get covered. Mm-hmm. So they have to find the covered solution that works for them. So yes, sometimes it's cutting. Sometimes it's holding a spot. And the nuances of that are just incredible. But mostly they're based on, again, as we said, the template that they're giving them, the principles that they're playing with, and then the individual player. Now, well, how does this all connect back? To play this type of conceptual offense, you have to give ownership and freedom to the players first and foremost. So that's also what we're looking for is Grady Dick's a great example. On the sideline, when Grady Dick shoots an open three or he shoots a three and he misses, is Darko reacting to that or is he coach clapping? Meaning regardless of whether the shot went in, he's going great shot, great shot. Like he's clapping already because he knows that's the right decision. To me, that's what you're going to see a lot more. Players are going to be a little bit freer to be able to take ownership. And you refer to it in terms of a little bit of leadership, but it's also this ownership in terms of, hey, this is your offense. We're giving you the template. We're giving you the principles, but we're not going to restrict you to the point that, hey, this player is getting 25 shots. This player is getting 17 shots. Mm -hmm. We already know who's going to shoot the most on this team. And there's never been a team I've ever coached where the best players don't shoot the most, whether I've said it or not, yeah. because players are smart and they know. Sure. And that's the level of elite players that you've got on this roster. So so the ownership and freedom to the players and to be truthful, many coaches are scared to do that, you know, but uh, I think the resu- results can be incredible. And I think Darko will approach it from that perspective that uh, the coach can't control everything. It's simply impossible given mm-hmm. the players, especially on this roster and in the in that league and how talented they are. So he's going to let them play the game and make decisions. And that's where a lot of this cutting is going to evolve from. I think yeah. you're going to see an increase in quality cuts because players are going to feel ownership and, as we said, a little bit of freedom to be able to do it. Mm. When it comes to being a shooter and then using a screening to create your advantages and also advantages for your teammates. And now I'm looking specifically at a Grady Dick, at a Gary Trent Jr. You could, you know, put a few more names in there. Otto Porter Jr., hopefully he's healthy this season. He would be another one. What are the keys to a shooter being a good screener? Because it works both ways. Like you're helping yourself, but you're also helping your team. Well, I mean, every every decision that happens in a game is obviously determined first by a decision based on how you're being covered. So the covered mm-hmm. solution. Like if your defender's pressing up on you and denying you access to the screen, you reject and go back door. If your defender is playing off of you, then you get a chance to get to the screen. And then once you get to the screen, you have a decision at the point of the screen based on where the space is. And obviously your teammate is an active participant. And we want to say this, it's not just your teammate who's setting the screen. It's also the passers an active participant and mm-hmm. the players off the ball as well. And it's all basically based on perception and decision relative to, again, reading this, where's the space and then where's the advantage. So to me, it's this, it's this beautiful synergy that exists when it's being done right. And that players are supporting each other in this really active way. And it's really beautiful basketball. And, uh, you know, I, I think back in the day, and I don't know how old you are, but I'm pretty old. So, like, we used to, <laughs> back in the day, used to be, like, how do you come out? Like, Grady Dick would be debated, like, oh, he comes off the screen. Is he inside foot? Is he dominant foot? Is he permanent yeah. pivot? Like, all these different things. But I think the best thing nowadays is adaptability. So when I look at a player, I look at how adaptable are they to different situations? And that's really, when I've watched him play, I look at him and I go, man, that guy's really adaptable. He's mm-hmm. really good at seeing, oh, somebody's trying to cut off my angle. Okay, I'll just flare into space without a screen and find space. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun. But I think the challenge for the roster is, are they going to appreciate that and support that in terms of being able to make that pass uh, rather than obviously hold the ball for that extra second, which takes away those advantages. And sure. that generally applies to the whole roster. But that's going to be the biggest thing early yeah. is how much do they keep that ball moving and create that advantage. What are your thoughts on something like this? So um, when Grady Dick was was drafted and Bill Self, he did a, a press availability. And I'd asked him, like, what are some of the pet plays for Grady Dick? How did you best utilize him? And he mentioned the pinch, pinch post. A set like that requires side clearing, but we're also talking at the same time. And once you clear a side, like it does become a little bit stagnant, right? There's some off-ball movement that you can do, but you are also congesting one side of the court. 
So how do you incorporate side clearing, which would be a great way to get some of these players open, and also just to give a Scotty Barnes, which we're going to get to in a second, you know, room for a post-up, or Pascal Siakam if there's a, ma- a matchup that makes sense for him. How do you do that while also maintaining the, the .5 style and the foundation of your offense? So this is where it's going to be interesting to see like Darko clearly has been in the NBA for a very long time. So it's, it's, it's not, but, but his roots are Europe and I know his love and passion for the game still goes back to a lot of European basketball and certainly being involved with the Serbian national team and different things Mm -hmm. like that over the years, he's done all those things. So a foundation of European basketball is masking actions. Masking actions are basically actions before the action. So we're just going to mask this main action with some movement prior to the main action. So to me, it's thinking about things like that. In your example, it's like, okay, instead of coming straight down into pinch post flash and entry with everyone else standing around, is there going to be some movement prior to that action? It doesn't have to be a lot of action. Obviously in Europe, some of it gets pretty crazy with, I can't believe how many actions. Five actions (laughs) in one set is crazy. I love it. And I think that, I know, I think that's why we all love watching it. It's like, oh my God, that's pretty impressive that uh, they do all that. But, you know, I think in the NBA, I think it's been proven through the years and certainly through a lot of the analytics that like getting as direct as possible to your best player in the best action you can get to is the best Mm -hmm. analytics for offensive efficiency. But what that doesn't take into account is that James Harden type of offense. It doesn't take into account the fact that you want your whole team to be bought in. You want your whole team to be involved. So I think masking actions and some of these different things that they do in terms of plays and conceptual offense really does help players feel more involved. And if you feel more involved on offense, and we can talk about defense all you want, but look, players want to feel involved on offense. They want to touch the ball. They want to feel like they're a part of it. They want to Mm -hmm. feel like there's a possibility, even if it's not. They're not talking about leading the team in shots. They're talking about feeling a part of the offense. And I think that's really the part that you're talking about there is that, look, there's a lot of different ways to be able to create movement and have people feel like they're involved prior to the main action. And I think we'll probably see some of that influence from Europe, from Darko, in terms of a lot of the set Mm -hmm. actions that they do do. I think the Raptors do, they lack guard depth, right? I think that's, it's by design. They wanted versatile forward types that, you know, across all the boards and that way they can guard all five positions and so forth. But with that, you kind of lack nimble movers, like quick twitch movers. And with cutting, that is very important, right? That means one second difference between a cut uh, working or not working. However, at the same time, they do have a lot of really high level basketball minds in their starting lineup. And also throughout their roster. I mean, OJ Anobi, Pascal Siakam, Jakob Pertl, Scotty Barnes, um, Gary Trent Jr. in his own way too. Um, these are people that can think the game at a very high level. And so that gives me hope that while the the speed may not be there necessarily with some of the cuts, with some of the Iverson cuts, and just if you're coming off uh, a couple of staggers and maybe it's not enough to bend the defense, but there's going to be the, the wherewithal between some of those screeners that, okay, maybe I'm going to flash to the paint and maybe I'll be found. And uh, that's... that gives me hope like it's easy for us to stand here and say okay well the Raptors don't have shooting they didn't have shooting last season so it's not going to work it's going to be very similar but um, I want to give some of these players some credit that if you give them the opportunity to use their minds and develop the minds and make some mistakes that they're going to find a way to help the Raptors have a middle tier offense which I think would be a good step for them definitely I mean that'd be a big step for them because I think I think again I mean Look, I think our expectations are pretty tempered for this group in some ways, mm-hmm. you know, in the sense that maybe they're not an NBA championship contender. But, I mean, we certainly expect that they should be a playoff contender. And I think yep. that's the expectation within the organization. And then from there, how good can they get? How good can they get offensively is obviously the biggest part of this. So I love that you reference basketball IQ. And I, and I think that's really a word that we all throw around like that. Yeah, they have some smart players. But what does that actually mean? And to me, that means that they can search, decide, and execute really quickly relative to their advantage. Search, decide, and execute relative to their advantage. And Mm -hmm. obviously, the same thing applies defensively. Search, decide, and execute relative to your defensive situation. So, you know, if you think about OG and how elite he is at at steals, that's because he has an incredible ability to be able to perceive and decide based Mm -hmm. on that search, decide, and execute. And to me, that's, that's just it. It's like... Darko's going to put them in situations where they get some freedom mm-hmm. within a template and within these principles of play. And then from there, it's going to come back to, can they search and decide and execute relative to that? And uh, I'm fascinated. I mean, 
I'll be honest, last year, the Raptors were not one of my favorite watches. And I think a lot of people who sure. love watching basketball, yeah. uh, other than from a fan perspective, certainly they weren't one of my favorite watches. And you could see the frustration, not just from, you know, Nick Nurse. You could tell from the players and you could just see that for whatever mm -hmm. reason, it wasn't working all the time. This is going to be the key part of it. I'm pretty sure early on is that Darko's going to get buy-in because of the style of play. And he's going to really connect players to that concept of being able to be free within this style of play, to be yourself. And the goal is always for any coach is to get your players to be the best version of themselves. And I think that's really what we're going to see. A lot of a lot of effort behind the scenes in terms of the staff on getting players to become the best version of themselves. Remember, I have of what you're talking about is when the Raptors ran the weave. And I've never seen a more lackluster weave than the one that I've seen because the weave, it, it can work. Right. It's it's a great basketball set. And then you parlay that into a, a high ball screen. And then all of a sudden you got the defense shifting one way and you're going downhill the other. And it could be really, really fascinating to fascinating result. Um, but with the Raptors, I don't know if the players necessarily bought into some of the sets that they were running. And that's just that is what it is. But with uh, even Nick Nurse had this problem, too, is you have Jakob Pertl and Scotty Barnes, two non three point shooters in your front court. I think Pascal Siakam will be used as a floor spacer for better or for worse. We'll have to see how it goes. He shot pretty well uh, from corner threes this past season. And I got to believe that it's only going to get better. However, with Jakob and Scotty Barnes, Scotty's early in his career, Jakob is a center who doesn't shoot, doesn't have a lot of range, but he's efficient around the rim. How do you space those two when they're on the court together? <laughs> Wow. I mean, the classic example of modern basketball is what to do with two, two bigs that aren't necessarily great three-point shooters. And yeah. it is a real dilemma. I mean, it's easy to say, put them in the dunker spots, but in the dunker spots, if it's two in the dunker spot or one in the dunker spot, then you're not following kind of a lot of the five out spacing, which is obviously what's supporting a lot of teams nowadays is mm -hmm. it's just creating more space and more gravity. If there's always a player in the dunker spot, it also means there's always a helper in the dunker spot. So the question is, you know, off of any drive situation from the Raptors, because there isn't necessarily a lot of elite shooting on the perimeter, a lot of the defense can collapse. And if they're collapsing, they're taking away dunker spot, they're taking away drives, and now it comes back to kickouts and playing out of that. And that's where I think a lot of this kind of spacing, a lot of the usage of these guys has to come from their ability to be able to run kind of dribble handoffs and little, different types of zoom, stagger, stagger dribble handoff situation zooms to be able to create a advantages because again to just be able to stand at the dunker spot it, it's just not a part of modern basketball that really helps now to end in the bunk, dunker spot is different than starting there uh and to be able to have a lot of versatility off of those kind of ro short rolls and different types of spacing you know because let's say a uh, portal is in the corner uh a lot of situations is i mean again back to your uh, golden state example i mean draymond's a non-shooting big and certainly sometimes they played with two non-shooting bigs, but Draymond's a unique non-shooting big because he's learned how to play in that 0.5 and never even consider the shot and immediately understand before he catches the ball where he's going to take that search, decide, and execute to an advantage to his team. Sometimes it's a dribble handoff. Sometimes it's an inverted dribble handoff. Sometimes it's a flip. Sometimes it's a pitch. Different things like that. And I mean, we already connected. I mean, Scotty Barnes has potential to be really elite at a lot of these things. Um, and it's just a question of, is it, is he willing to do it? Because what you can't do when you do that is you can't have the ball stick in your hands. You got to get it out of your hands quick with these quick kind of pitch, pitch and dribble handoff decisions, and then understand where to go after that, which is to get into space. Now, the other part of that is his teammates have to reward him. If he's going to do that for them, then they've got to find him when he gets back into space, space for speed, especially kind of closer to the basket where he can take advantage of that. And, uh, you know, that's a whole... That's a whole next level concept, obviously, but I think that's what we hope to see with a lot of what those two guys are doing as the non-shooting bigs to be able to play a lot more of pitches and handoffs and, uh, you know, getting into getting into space after those actions. Something Stephen Jones on Twitter had mentioned a few days ago is using some of these non-shooting bigs as off-ball screeners for um, for shooters. Um, now the Raptors, they lack their shooters, but they do have some. And uh, that's something that I'm curious if they if they experiment a little bit is like you have Jakob Pertl spaced at the 45, right? But then as the ball makes its way around the swing, now you have him, you know, setting a back screen or something like that. Or as we're talking about, you know, changing around the angles and finding ways to get players open and it's within the, the, the flow of the offense. I wonder if that, what that looks like with the Toronto Raptors. And for Scotty Barnes, we can get to it now. 
I I did a podcast the other day with someone and we were just talking about what Scotty's ideal role would be with the Raptors this upcoming season. And he is a high level reader. He makes fast decisions. He can hit his passing it when angles and windows are different from someone uh, who's a lot smaller, a Fred Van Vliet, for instance, because he's able to see over defenses with his seven, three wingspan. What does Scotty's role look like in a year three that is pretty crucial for defining, you know, I guess silencing some critics, I would say. Well, and again, we know that development's nonlinear. So I, I, I think the reason for optimism, I think above anything else for Raptor fans is Scotty Barnes, Gary Trent, Otto Porter. I mean, look at all these guys that, as you referenced at the beginning, didn't have great years relative to what were expectations. And I just think there's a lot of room for optimism because I do think Scotty's going to take a leap. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, one thing that you hear about him is that you never hear work ethics an issue. Right. You never hear that he it's an issue in terms of the quality of person he is. So the intent and the discipline is there. So now it's just a question of being able to take again, take those things and be able to put them in a situation where he can succeed. And that's on Darko and the staff and the template that they're going to play with. But I think it's also on the team to be able to, again, play better basketball together. So, you know, all of these players, I look at them and I go, yeah, they're going to be much better if they do things together. Because I, it's definitely, I mean, it was proved last year, but it's yeah. not an isolation roster. It yeah. really isn't. You know, even though, again, you referred to Sackham is probably a really elite isolation player. But, you know, is there different ways to be able to do that? Is there different ways to be able to get him in isolation where it's not, mm -hmm. as we said, really static? And for me, Scotty Barnes is a movement type player that is really good kind of at finding spaces off of kind of weird and different movements. Like he's not yeah. this typical catch it straight line drive guy. He's just really good at probing on a way. It's almost like a guard ball screen skill where they have that handle that they're able to kind of probe and find space at a moment and then take advantage of that with a burst of speed. You know, I think Scotty has some really unique things to him and uh, I'm excited. I mean, I, I have no doubt that that dude's been listening to everyone in a sense. And then sure. he's been ready. He's been ready kind of this off season. And I know I'm sure the Raptor coaches have spent a lot of time with him in the off season as well. And uh, you know, that seems to be a change. And I don't think it's unique to the staff, but um, you know, traditionally players in the off season would just go and be with their trainer or be kind of separate from the team. But you know, from what I know now, a lot of NBA teams, they're doing a much better job being able to keep players connected to the team throughout the whole offseason. Yeah. And my understanding is the Raptors have really tried to do a great job of that in the offseason as well. So, you know, that should be exciting for people because it means, again, they should be ahead of the game in terms of how they're starting. What does pick and roll look like with Scotty Barnes as a ball handler? The screen, I think we already know. Um, we saw a bit of it last season and it was very successful. Um, it was probably some of the best stretches of basketball he had last year was when he was a screening. He was kind of in a Marcus Saul role where he was uh, doing dribble handoffs. He was rolling to the basket. He was making decisions in the high post um, and just attacking edges of the defense. But um, for him, he says he wants to be a point guard. Point guards often run pick and roll. Um, uh, obviously, you know, the pull-up shooting probably has to level up a little bit. But as we talk about the Raptors and, you know, decoy actions and getting edges on defenses, that's kind of where I think the Raptors could have done a better job last season is that once you beat their primary action or you stopped it, they didn't really know where to go. And then it became an isolation style of basketball. But decoys, running some of the weeds that I'm talking about and then getting – uh, Scotty, just an edge on a defense, on a defender, so he's able to get downhill because his face-up game is still emerging, but he's still bruising, a bruising penetrator. Um, so your take on, on that is how can they set him up for success as a pick-and-roll ball handler? I'm fascinated by it. I mean, I, I as I alluded to kind of in the last thing, just about his ability to be able to probe. Like he yeah. really has a, a good sense of using his kind of shoulder to chest to be able to always be in protection of the ball, to be able to flip his hips and turn and get to space. And those are kind of like characteristics of kind of, you know, successful ball handlers in pick and roll that he really is able to good at protect and be able to find the space and be able to go in burst of speed. And then obviously the strength component of it too is that, mm. you know, he's really hard to stop when he's got a burst of speed in space for sure. Yeah. Uh, or that shoulder to chest type of advantage. So I, I, I think it's obvious that the challenges for him are obviously shooting behind the screen. And then as you alluded to a little bit more of the pull up, although, you know, not necessarily a desired outcome. It's like, it's not about necessarily shooting the pull up. It's about, can you get to that next level, which is getting closer to your floater and being mm. able to score off of that. Mm. Um, 
you know, the challenge for anyone who hasn't played a ton of pick and roll is obviously the ability to be able to find. And it's not about find the roller. It's about being able to spray it to the weak side. You know, yeah. to be able to whip it to the weak side, especially if we're talking about playing against modern basketball, which is a lot of drop coverage or a lot of type of, type of switch coverages, then you've got to be able to whip it to the weak side to be able to take take advantage of the tag defender and to be able to kind of get it to positions where they can play. And to mm-hmm. me, it's not about him individually. It's more about him being able to play individually within the collective. And that yeah. kind of collective consciousness that comes from running a pick and roll, even though it seems like an isolated two-player game, as we know, it's all about those players off the ball and whether they're creating gravity or they're cutting or, you know, they're, you know, one of their players is helping on a tag on the roll and yeah. then who's taking advantage of that. So to me, it's that more than anything. So if they're working with him, not this off season on it, and I don't know if they are, but if they are, then I'm imagining that they're replicating those situations with a ton of coaches or a ton of practice players on the court and having him have to make a ton of decisions out of that pick and roll. Yeah. Those short passes are going to be their best friend with some of the players that have like the length that they have with a Jakob, a Pascal Siakam, a Scotty Barnes, they can see over defenses. They can catch balls over defenses. Um, and if you're able to create some switches now, Pascal Siakam is being guarded by a six-five player just because that's how the cookie crumbled. Like now there's a, a window there for uh, an easy attempt and Pascal Siakam, which I want to ask you about now. Um, he has been a high usage player for the Toronto Raptors, high isolation. It reaches 25% sometimes with his usage. And often he is stick handling in a phone booth. There's very little space for him to operate yet. Somehow, some way he's finding ways to be successful. I've been waiting for him to emerge as a consistent 25 point per game player. But until that three point shot turns around and becomes consistent, he's probably maxed out in quotes um, at a very nice, very good 24, eight and five. But within this offense, um, where also, I mean, he held the ball a lot last season. That's what he was asked to do. He operated from the high post, and he was successful at it. He loved being able to see the four players around him, and he just found ways to get that mid-range jump shot off. But with a system like this, it's going to be quite different for him. What do you think his role is going to be um, within a Darko-led offense? Because you do want to use, like, you want to leverage your best players. No different than what the Grizzlies did with a John Morant. When John Morant was on the court, it was a lot of, you know, let Jaw create the edge, and then we go from there. But once he went off the court, or when he was injured or not with the team, the, the offense looked very different. And I wonder how can they mesh that with Pascal Siakam so it's not so much isolation and rely on him to bend the defense. It's let's do it together. But then now you're making his life easier and he's just able to penetrate and uh, score the ball around the rim. Well, the Grizzlies are a great reference. I mean, obviously Darko was there, but also just in terms of like, as much as John Morant was the best player and took a lot of shots, there was a lot of equal opportunity within that roster and within that offense. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that concept of good to great was definitely a big part of Darko's philosophy that he talked about on the podcast that concept of okay we got a good shot but where's the great shot so keep the ball moving and I think that's going to be a part that's going to help all the players on the team but as we know it all starts with Siakam and his ability to be able to trigger what we call dominoes dominoes is basically that I beat my check and now I draw rotation I draw help so I draw two and now I got to keep that ball moving so that we keep the defense falling rather than allowing them to recover to me, a lot of what, uh, you know, and listen, I, I'm so impressed with Siakam, how he's developed. It's absolutely like when I first watched him, I would say the beginning of his career, I wasn't sure he was a good ball handler. Like it seemed shaky. It seems yeah. I'm like, I'm not sure I trust it. And he is a little unorthodox still with it, but he's so effective in so many ways at being able to get his body and particularly his shoulders back to a square position. That is just mm-hmm. kind of a marvel to watch. But I'm guessing, again, a lot of it is going to be he's going to face a lot more, you know, defensive coverage than in the past without Fred there and different players like that that kind of drew extra attention. And, uh, you know, what is he going to do off of those different spins and those different types of drives that he does? Is he able to move it? And then once they move it, are they able to keep the dominoes falling and particularly leading to that good to great shot? And that's going to be a big question. And that doesn't mean a three. That just means that the ball keeps moving till the point that we get either a cut or we get a drive or we get an open shot. And uh, that's a big part that's going to be exciting to watch, I think, with this offense. But I don't know if I would take Siakam fully away from the high post either. Like, like you look at him there and he's elite. So I think they're going to find ways to keep playing him there. As we already talked about, they might just do it differently where it's not just a a dribble into that spot. It's not a pass to that spot. It's a different type of movement or a different type of variability to be able to get them there. Yeah. 
To give cre credit to Nick Nurse for a second, he was one of the people who told Pascal that, you know, you want to get to the next step? Yeah, three-point shot, but also you got to start facing the rim more, right? Mm -hmm. Too much back to the basket, and that meant becoming a better ball handler, and he is confident with it. It's not uh, probably as fluid as maybe a guard, but he's also, you know, 6'9". It's going to look a little bit different. However, he really gets poked, and um, the digs aren't nearly as effective as they used to be, and uh, he has, like, eyes on the back of his head last season when he was at his peak, it was probably before his injury in Dallas is that it felt like it got to a point where either I'm going to score, or I'm going to find the open man and you can pick how it's going to look. And that's where the triple doubles are really emerging. And him finding the open man is less of my worry. It's about, is that open man going to make himself available at that precise moment when he has to be there? When Pascal makes a spin or when he makes that jab step or when the, another defender, the, the second defender is making their way towards Pascal Siakam or inching towards him. Who is going to flash into space, uh, making themselves available? That's where kind of my worry is. But Pascal, if his three-point shot does come around, um, he should have a very efficient season. And I want to see them play more in transition as much as they possibly can. They played a lot there last season too, but um, he's going to have a great year. Once again, I, I hope at least. Can I bring this full circle then? Because I know sure. cutting was on your mind. It seems yeah. to be on your mind all the time, 24-7, which is great. And cutting is such an important part of the game. And you just reference that. And it's like, okay, the simplest thing is to think about a player off the ball. If their player turns their head and looks at Siakam, then that's mm -hmm. a time to cut, right? Yeah. And if they don't, then that's a time to hold. And it's really just a question you said about, like, I mean, Siakam, as we said, like, it's so impressive how how he's got good. You know, one, how he's limited his spins because he was yeah. getting attacked so early in his career. And two, how he's learned how to pass out of those situations. And it's just counter, yeah. And counter, yeah. And, uh, it's awesome. It's fun to watch. But as you said, so if a player cuts off the ball, it's not just about that player now. Okay, my player turns their head. It's not that they go double. Like, it's not always a double that draws help. It's also a player that just their attention focuses on one player. So if a defender covering you loses focus and focus on Siakam, what are you going to do about it? And that would be a cut situation potentially. Or as you alluded to, maybe an off the ball screen where now it's a, you know, a flare or a hammer screen off the ball and different yeah. things like that. So, you know, there are, some, there are some creative ways to try and do it. As you said, the question still comes back to how are they going to do it, you know, relative to kind of the strengths that they have. And so, you know, certainly they have some weaknesses that they have to kind of play, play and figure out. Yeah. Looking at their passing. So they're 23rd in assists per game last year. First in assist to turnover, turnover ratio. That was one of the hallmarks of what their team was. Eighth in passes per game, 17th in potential assists, fifth in assists assisted points created so you can see it that they were generating they were passing the ball it's not that they weren't they were passing the ball but it wasn't as effective and also their ability to finish around the rim wasn't terrific they were 16th there overall 27th in true shooting percentage 22nd in free throw attempts per game so finishing around the basket is going to has been one of the problems with this team and that's development that's uh it's actually having like, you know, positive angles to attack the rim um, because you can take an attempt at the rim, but it doesn't mean it was a good one, an accurate one, a high percentage one. Um, so uh, Darko has his workout work cut out for him. There's no question about that. Um, I'm curious what you think about that though. Do you, how do you help players finish better at the rim? That's actually another, another point. Well, number one, you got to get to the rim. And I think, I think when I looked at the stats getting ready for this, I think, I think one said there were 17th in drives. Yeah. yeah. You got to drive more. That, that's mm -hmm. that's really it right you can't yeah. settle for you know a lot of the mid-range a lot of the different types of shots i mean mm -hmm. especially if we're talking about them being a non-shooting three they've got to increase their drive rate and that's that's a big part and that's what we talked about with the 0.5 and the ball movement that's going to hopefully increase their drive rate because you can't finish if you don't get there so getting there is number one and then number two is just again um being elite finishing at the rim has more to do with your decision obviously relative to uh not the player covering you but those other players and mm -hmm. making those decisions relative to where the help is. And if I'm one-on-one, -on -one, then I'm finishing. And if I'm one-on-two, then I'm passing and that type of thing. And so you got to create those situations. You got to create those situations in player development. You got to create those situations in practice. And the one thing I do know, I can say unequivocally, practicing finishing one-on-o does nothing to improve finishing in a game. And, and I don't think that, and I think these players and the, certainly the coaching staff are smart enough to not be doing that. But you see a lot of trainer driven stuff is a lot of one on no finishes. And this isn't meant to be anti-trainer. It's just literally, it's like, okay, I get it. That looks good. But in a game before you shoot a layup or before you finish at the rim, you always have to go through this perception action coupling process, which is you perceive and decide relative to a player, whether it's your player, an off the ball player, before you even look at the rim. 
So mm-hmm. if you're doing a lot of stuff on air unopposed, then you're never going to increase your ability to finish. You've got to do a lot of stuff in some type of way versus some type of distracting information or visual stimuli that causes yeah. you not to look at the rim and predetermine that you're going to finish. And uh, I'm imagining again that they're creating those situations in player development. Um, Vinay's there. Uh, he's a tremendous player development coach. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons they brought him on board. In addition to being a good friend of Darko, he'll help a lot with trying to create those situations in practice. I think I have asked every question I could possibly ask you. <laughs> I mean, there's probably more, but uh, it's, it's been an hour or so. So I just want to thank you for your time. If there's anything else you want to mention, anything else that uh, you want to mention coming up for you. Um, otherwise, I've just enjoyed your time. It's been very informative. I hope people feel don't feel like we've been talking in circles, but so much of what the Raptors are going to be next season is going to be dependent on the situation and the players making the reads in those circumstances, in those sequences. And uh, that that's where the training of uh, Darko and his, and his team is going to be so important. The practices, the one-on-one moments, um, getting players to hone in on what their responsibilities are and having buy-in. Am I going to cut here or am I going to settle for a jump shot? Right. It's easy to space, but sometimes maybe it is better to, you know, collapse the defense a little bit more. And then all of a sudden you have another player rotating around for an even better shot, as Darko has mentioned. So, uh, again, thank you so much for your time. I I really do appreciate it. Well, I love this. I really enjoyed this. And maybe we should have a conversation once we start seeing them play. And, uh, you know, then we'll have more more understanding and more answers or more possibilities for what the future kind of template is. But. Uh, no, I just really enjoy that. And if, if anyone wants to continue the conversation at B-Ball Immersion on Twitter and at Coach B-Ball Immersion on Instagram, you know, hit me up to uh, talk about this podcast or anything else uh, in terms of basketball. Just love it. Mm-hmm. Love what you're doing. Love that we're sharing the game. And uh, can you imagine, I can't imagine, I'm 50 now, but I can't imagine 20 years ago having this type of in-depth conversation with a media member about yeah. basketball. And credit to you and everyone else in the media about how much you've improved the collective understanding of basketball Mm. for all of us by diving deep and understanding not just players, but coaching as well. And it's just tremendous to have these conversations. So thank you. I mean, people like you help us do that by going to your YouTube channel and looking at things and observing and understanding. So that's the biggest change. We have the That's what I'm here for, too. So that's great. There you go. (laughs) All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening or watching. And we'll talk to you very soon.